Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of unique perspectives on leadership. I'll be joined a little bit later on in today's show by former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Forrester-Coles, the Director of Operations at Teva Runcorn. That is the UK base of Teva Pharmaceuticals, one of the world's largest manufacturers of medicinal products. The UK headquarters are based in Runcorn, Cheshire. Steve, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Now, um, the reason we're here is to, of course, discuss your take on leadership first and foremost. But considering that this generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say. I think it would be remiss of me not to ask how the COVID-19 situation has affected your operations. So, obviously, we make pharmaceutical products and um, there's been a strong demand for sterile medicines, particularly sterile respiratory medicines, which is um, the the vast majority of our volume. Um, So we've been faced with challenges to to, to meet the the global demand for respiratory sterile medicines, as well as the other sterile products that we make here. Um, And whilst trying to... um, have as many of our support staff off-site working from home as possible um, in what is quite normally quite an interactive business. So it's been quite a challenge. I'm happy to report now that so we've managed to meet all of these customers' needs, and that's been significantly uh, increased over, uh, over what would normally have been anticipated. But we've also um, been able to do that um, and now we've managed to bring, with the staff working remotely, but we've managed to bring the staff that were remote back on site. We've spent a considerable amount of effort uh, re-engineering the facility to make it as safe as possible for people to come in and to be distant while they were socially distant while they're working. And um, quite delighted to say that the staff are now pleased to be back and pleased to be uh, engaged in the interactivity that's needed to some drive some of the business initiatives forward. So well, honestly, meeting the demand was a challenge. Um, pushing the business forwards to do new products is, is where we're now. We're focusing our efforts now that we've got people back in each other. Certainly very positive to hear that things have gone well um, in that sense, Steve. Um, just how easy was it adapting to the remote working side of things because I suppose leadership from a distance and making sure that everything is just ticking over during um, a time of crisis like this I can imagine that sometimes that is a little bit of a challenge but seems from what you've said you've sort of handled it quite well yeah look it, it, it's been difficult because there's been some some folks we have to ask to work from home because of uh, risk and there's been some folks that we've asked to work from home just to keep the uh, the occupancy of the facility down whilst we re-engineer it. We re-engineer office space, re-engineer IT systems that make it possible for people to come back safely. Um, we spent a considerable effort with architects, uh, conditioning engineers, and uh, facilities designers trying to make the place feel safe and be safe. Quite honestly, going forward, 
some of the things that were done, you would question why you wouldn't do anyway to minimize spreads of cold, spread of cold, colds and uh, flus, um, and general, um, general uh, ailments that hit us during the winter. I suppose what the pandemic situation has done is accelerated a lot of the changes that may well have come in industry anyway, for sure. Um, but having sort of reflected on the uh, the pandemic situation as it's been for you so far, is there anything that you would say from a leadership perspective that you have learned from this period and can perhaps take as some sort of positive? So, so uh, what we've learned is perhaps to use some of the technologies that um, simple technologies like teams for meetings and um, to, to have more remote meetings and interactive meetings over the, over the internet. Well, no one is expected to sit together in a room, but they're getting close. So we've learned to use, to embrace them, some of the, uh, the, the, pl- the meeting platforms that are out there. And I suppose also what the, uh, the situation has also laid bare is the fact that when we are in a leadership position within a business. We are the sorts of people that individuals look to for direction, inspiration and reassurance as and when they require it. But when you are the person who is expected to provide that and you are the one at the top of the tree and there's nobody else really to refer to, it can almost feel a little bit of a lonely place being in a leadership position. So when you do need inspiration yourself, Steve, where do you tend to draw that from? That's a good question. I try always to think of the business that we run. Um, first of all, I have a responsibility to everybody to make sure they feel safe. I have a responsibility to everybody to make sure that they understand what's going on in the business um, and that they feel that their role in the business is still needed. So I draw my inspiration. I, I, I draw my inspiration from the people that work here, to be quite honest. I take a look at their insecurities, their joys, and try and solve some of those problems and try and think, outthink my competitors, outthink the the concerns that people have and try and be as reassuring as I can to people that we've understood their concerns and we're dealing with them. So... I look to, to the people that work here for inspiration, and I like to think what I can do, what the team can do here to be ahead of the pack. And thinking of the future for a moment, when hopefully in a couple of years' time we're in a world where COVID-19 is no longer an issue, do you think that some of the features of the lockdown period that have been billed as potentially becoming part of the permanent way we do business in this country, such as maybe the advance to remote working, do you think that that will be sort of there in vogue or do you think we'll return more to a conventional working environment? I think we will bring the pendulum back to more conventional. It's my personal view, more conventional uh, working environments. Um, but then again, I'm in a rural part of the country, so I'm not faced with commute challenges to, to London or central Manchester with my staff. However, I, I think um, for me, the thing that I find is, is the most inspirational is that uh, we try and recruit the very best people we can, and we don't think of our business, although we make medicine, some of the roles here are very technical, very sophisticated. We don't consider ourselves a factory. And if we think of a business that makes sour medicines, it's 
sophisticated operation where the life changing, life threatening processes that need to be carefully run and carefully managed. Why wouldn't you have talent everywhere in the business? That's been the mantra that I've tried mm. to pursue here. Make it to lead people, not manage them. And, uh, and that, that's been my inspiration. Get talented people, more talented than I would have been at that age, uh, because they're more highly educated now, and, and, to, uh, and to free them up of um, management practices and put them more into leadership uh, positions, because we're all leading something in the business. Mm. I find that the most exciting bit of the journey. And I find it very exhilarating to think about it. To have this, um, haven't worked on it to that yet. Uh, some countries, in some countries and some cultures, you would never have highly, highly educated people in charge of processes. They might be um, traditional management structure. But in the UK, we've lost a very high ratio of educated people. So why not use that for your advantage? And if you had to give yourself some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, based upon all of your experience, what advice would you give them? So I once met an industrial psychologist who taught me a very valuable lesson. People behave, logical people behave in a manner which makes sense to them at the time. It's the job of leadership to make sense of the behaviours that we want and the responses that we want. Because only if you make sense of them will people adhere to them. They'll do it out of respect if you tell them. But that's command, that's management. If you want to lead them, you have to make sense mm. of what's needed. So my advice would be try and make sense of what's needed in the business so that people buy into it in a sustainable way. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, because leadership and management are fundamentally different qualities, even if there is some overlap inevitably between the two. And I think, and when I say that, excuse me, I think more of the overlap in the sense of people management more than anything else. I think as a leader, one has to be able to manage people, be adaptable to fit with different personalities, because no one approach is necessarily going to work for everybody. I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I think that I think the trick is that uh, the, if, if we could empower people to make decisions in sophisticated businesses, they need to be educated enough to understand those decisions and to make decisions in a in a solid way. Um, and that requires them to be very talented. So um, don't down the talent, find the best people you can, um, create a culture where those people can be empowered and make it acceptable for people to make good rational decisions um, rather than to defer them up the chain of management. So clearly it's about giving people the right framework to make decisions in, getting the right people, motivating them and letting them um, letting them enjoy Ties in wonderfully with a quote from Nelson Mandela that actually surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think anybody tuning into this who is hopeful of 
starting a business and going into entrepreneurialism should really take heed of that message. And having reflected on this, Steve, it only serves as well that we also address the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today. Um, we're aware, of course, that over the next 12 to 18 months, we will have to adjust to a new sort of way of working and a new way of life until we do come out of the COVID-19 situation. So over that period, what do you think is next for you and for Tiva and what do you hope to achieve as a company during that time? So um, the strategic direction of the business is something that is vital to um, is vital to everybody. And for me personally, um, I'm deploying my team, my time to look at the strategic um, Seems as if there's plenty to be getting on with over the course oh, of the fun. next few it's months, fun. for sure. It's really exciting and really fun. Mm. And let's hope that on the horizon there will be some really positive news to uh, to share on that front, also, Steve. And you know, just given how informative and insightful it's been having you join us on the program today, I think it would be fantastic to catch up in future and have you back on the show with us, just to see how things are getting on a little further on into the future. Thank you. It would be a real pleasure for me um, as well, Steve. It's been wonderful having you join us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do please take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you very much. And you too. I was speaking on today's programme to Steve Forrester-Coles, the Director of Operations at Teva Runcorn. And for all those individuals tuning in and listening today, do please continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, but made his name as a former Labour MP and prominent Secretary of State, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's how 
confidence and courage, obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. 
and that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.